Hello, I'm Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Lord of Fact. Today we are talking about torts. Okay, today we are talking intentional torts to the person. Before we talk about the intentional torts, let's put this in context. Torts are civil wrongs. They are cases brought by one party, the plaintiff, against someone or some entity the plaintiff thinks has wronged him or her. On an exam, in order to prove an intentional tort, or any tort, you must prove every element of the tort. If the tort has three elements, you must prove all three elements. And, on an exam, if you can't prove one of the elements, say you can't show intent, you should still discuss every other element of the tort, because most likely a professor will want you to demonstrate your understanding of each element. We studied seven intentional torts, four torts that involve the person, battery, assault, false imprisonment, and intentional infliction of emotional distress, and three torts that involve property, trespass to land, trespass to chattel, and conversion. In this podcast, we'll focus on the intentional personal torts. Okay, so let's talk about intentional torts to the person. Every intentional tort includes one element that is common among them, and that is the element of intent. Intent in tort, in a sense, has two meanings. Intent means either acting with purpose or with substantial certainty. In other words, one can intend conduct either if he or she has the goal of carrying out that contact or if he or she is substantially certain that the contact will result. In Garrett v. Daly, the issue is whether a five-year, nine-month-old was capable of possessing the intent necessary to be responsible for battery when he pulled a chair out from Mrs. Garrett. Intent, the court held, could mean either purpose or goal or substantial certainty. So little Billy Daly had the intent necessary to prove battery, the tort plaintiff filed against him, if it was his goal to cause Mrs. Garrett to make contact with the ground when he pulled the chair out from under her. Alternatively, let's say it wasn't Billy's goal to cause Mrs. Garrett to hit the ground. Instead, Billy was pulling the chair out from under Mrs. Garrett so that Billy could sit in it. If in pulling the chair out for the purpose of claiming it for himself, he was pretty darn sure that a byproduct of his conduct was that Mrs. Garrett would fall and make contact with the ground, then Billy acted with substantial certainty and is therefore also said to have the intent necessary to prove intent for purposes of battery. The court in Garrett v. Daly held that someone as young as Billy Daly can formulate the appropriate intent so long as he or she had the goal of bringing about the contact or was substantially certain, in other words, pretty darn sure, that his conduct will cause harmful or offensive contact. A mentally ill woman was held to possess the intent necessary for battery since she knew that she was pushing her aid aside to get her aid out of the way. It was her goal to make the contact with her aid by pushing her. One last word on intent. Keep in mind, to prove intent, plaintiff must show either that the defendant was purposeful or had the goal of making contact, or that the defendant was substantially certain that the contact would result. Plaintiff must prove one or the other, not both, And it doesn't matter whether the plaintiff shows defendant acted with purpose or with substantial certainty. They both carry equal weight for purposes of proving intent. Okay, so that is intent. As we walk through these torts, you will notice that each one of these torts includes the element of intent. Let's begin with battery. Section 13 and 18 of the restatement set forth battery. 
They are basically the same except one concerns harmful contact resulting and the other concerns offensive contact resulting. Under Section 13, an actor is subject to liability to another for battery if he acts intending to cause a harmful or offensive contact with the person of the other or a third person or an imminent apprehension of such contact and a harmful contact with the person occurs. Under Section 18, an actor is liable for battery if he acts intending to cause a harmful or offensive contact with the person of the other or a third person or an imminent apprehension of such contact and offensive contact with the person directly or indirectly results. Stated more simply, the elements of battery include 1. An intent to cause contact that is harmful or offensive and harmful or offensive contact that results. We already talked about intent, but let's look at it in the context of intending harmful or offensive contact. In Wagner versus State, the court held that in order to prove contact, the plaintiff must show that the defendant intended to make contact and that the contact was harmful or offensive. So under Wagner, in order to prove intent for battery purposes, the defendant need only intend the contact, and then of course the contact must be harmful or offensive. In order to prove intent to make contact, the plaintiff must show that the defendant's contact was deliberate. The second thing the plaintiff must show is that the harmful or offensive contact resulted. A few things to note here. First, the contact must be with the person or something intimately attached to the person. A defendant who grabbed a plate from plaintiff's hand was said to have made contact with the plaintiff since the plaintiff was holding the plate at the time. The plate, the court ruled, touched the plaintiff's person, and by grabbing the plate, the defendant made contact. In Wagner, a mentally disabled person grabbed plaintiff's hair and threw her to the ground. The court found defendant intended to reach out and grab her hair. Thus, he was deliberate in making contact. So in order to prove the intent element of battery, one must show the defendant had either the goal or was substantially certain that his conduct would result in contact. An issue arises as to what constitutes contact. Of course, touching the plaintiff is sufficient to show contact, but contact can also go beyond physically touching the plaintiff. Contact can result from touching something that is so closely connected to the body of the person. For example, snatching a plate from a plaintiff's hand constitutes contact for purposes of battery. Another issue concerning battery is the type of harm for which the defendant is responsible. It's important to note that for battery, as I mentioned before, the plaintiff need not show the defendant intended the type of harm or offense that occurred to the plaintiff. A defendant is responsible for all the harm that results from the contact. In the case where a schoolmate merely tapped another on the leg and the leg subsequently deteriorated, the defendant was responsible for all the harm caused. You take your plaintiff as you find him. Finally, when considering harm, remember there must be some harm or offense. Harm is easy to establish. Offense may be not as easy. In Fisher, the case where the restaurant manager grabbed a plate from the African-American NASA scientist, the court found that the offense of humiliation and indignity that resulted from grabbing the plate justified recovery. Okay, so that's battery, intending to cause harmful or offensive contact and harm or offense results. Let's now turn to assault. Section 21 of the Restatement Second defines assault. An actor is responsible for assault if he or she acts intending to cause harmful or offensive contact or an imminent apprehension of such contact, and the other is put in imminent apprehension. You will notice that the same intent to do the same type of harm exists in both assault and battery. In both assault and battery, the actor must act either purposely or with substantial certainty. The difference is that in battery, contact must result, 
while in assault, the defendant does not make contact. So if a defendant raises a stick to hit the plaintiff, and the plaintiff is watching this occur, and then the defendant brings down the stick but misses the plaintiff, but the plaintiff jumps back to avoid the stick, thereby hurting herself, we have assault. Defendant intended to hit the plaintiff, make contact. There was no contact, but harm resulted from plaintiff's imminent apprehension. Plaintiff jumped back. If, however, the defendant raises a stick to hit the plaintiff and the plaintiff's back is turned to the defendant and the plaintiff is unaware of the defendant's conduct, then there's no assault. The plaintiff did not know that the defendant raised the stick and was therefore not put in imminent apprehension of the harm. When proving assault, keep in mind that there must be a present ability to make the contact. Without present ability, the plaintiff is not in real imminent harm. In Western Union, the evidence showed that the defendant, who was behind a desk that came up to his armpits, may have had the ability to reach the plaintiff, and thus it was up to the jury to decide, in light of the potential to touch the plaintiff, whether the defendant committed assault. Conversely, where defendants stood over one football field away from the plaintiff and intentionally shot a BB gun at plaintiff, the court held that the plaintiff could not reasonably conclude that the BB gun pelt would reach the plaintiff, and as a result, plaintiff was not in imminent apprehension of harm. So that is assault, intent to cause harmful or offensive contact or an imminent apprehension of such contact, and imminent apprehension results. Remember, when discussing assault, make sure that the plaintiff understands that the defendant has a present ability to make the contact. And keep in mind that with both assault and battery, the defendant intends to make the contact. In battery, the defendant does make contact. With assault, the defendant does not. Let's turn now to false imprisonment. An actor is responsible for false imprisonment if he or she acts intending to confine another or third party within fixed boundaries and his conduct does confine the other and the other is either conscious of the confinement or harmed by it. So first of all, there it is again, intent. In order to prove false imprisonment, the defendant must show either that it is the actor's goal to confine the plaintiff or the actor is substantially certain that his conduct will confine the plaintiff. The next thing to consider is what is meant by confinement. One can be confined to a nursing home or a boat when not provided ample means to leave the boat. One can also be confined to a city, a golf course, or a moving car. So long as the plaintiff has no reasonable means of leaving, the plaintiff is confined. It is also important to note here that the plaintiff must be aware of the ability to escape. So if plaintiff is placed in a room and told he cannot get out, but in fact one door is not locked, defendant did not confine the plaintiff if the plaintiff could have merely tried the door. Similarly, if plaintiff is asked to sit in a security room so that the security can investigate whether she stole something, plaintiff is not confined if she's willingly went to the security room. Moral persuasion is not enough to constitute confinement. Neither are threats of future confinement sufficient to prove confinement for purposes of false imprisonment. The other element that is important for purposes of proving false imprisonment is the element of being either conscious of the confinement or harmed by it. Defendant must know she is confined at the time of the confinement, or if she does not know of it, she must suffer some harm as a result of the confinement. In Parvi v. City of Kingston, the court held that if plaintiff was aware that he was in a police car or stranded on a golf course at the time of confinement, then the element of conscious confinement is met. This is true even if the plaintiff was not aware of the confinement after the fact. So that is false imprisonment. Defendant is responsible for false imprisonment if he acts intending to confine another or third party within fixed boundaries, and his act does confine the other, and the other is either conscious of the confinement or harmed by it. 
Finally, let's talk about intentional infliction of emotional distress, or as I like to call it, IIED. According to the restatement, one who, without privilege to do so, intentionally causes severe emotional distress to another is liable for such emotional distress and for the bodily harm resulting from it, meaning there must be some physical manifestation of the harm. Stated more clearly, one is responsible for IIED if his or her conduct is intentional or reckless, is extreme and outrageous, if there is a causal connection between the wrongful conduct and the emotional distress, and the emotional distress is severe. Let's talk about each of these elements one at a time. First, the conduct must be intentional or reckless. Well, we know what intentional means, but this tort adds a new level of intent called reckless. Reckless means a personal awareness of a risk. So under this element, one can be responsible for IIED if either it is her goal to cause severe emotional distress, or she is substantially certain that her conduct will cause severe emotional distress, or, and IIED is the only intentional tort where this applies, she is personally aware of a risk that her harm will cause severe emotional distress. Second, the conduct must be extreme and outrageous. And here the courts mean really extreme and really outrageous. It must be beyond any community standards of decency. Saying to a stranger in a supermarket, you stink me, is not outrageous. Nor is calling a teacher a Polish Nazi, or even continuous humiliation through racist jokes. But a court held that promising to marry someone while already married to another is sufficient to constitute outrage. The bottom line, in order to prove the extreme and outrageous element, the conduct must be unusually extreme and remarkably outrageous. Third, there must be a causal connection between the wrongful conduct and the emotional distress. So defendant was not responsible for IIED where he beat up a father in the presence of the father's daughter since the defendant was not aware that the daughter was in eyesight. Since defendant did not know the daughter was watching, it was not his goal nor was he substantially certain or even aware of a risk that the daughter would suffer from IIED. Finally, the emotional distress must be severe. Early on, there was a requirement that the plaintiff suffer a physical manifestation of emotional distress. For the most part, this is still the case since the plaintiff must show some type of harm that's recoverable. In Harris v. Jones, the court held that the defendant's conduct, which exacerbated plaintiff's stutter and other emotional harms, was not sufficient to support the type of harm necessary to recover for IAED. The distress must be so severe that no reasonable person would be able to endure it. So that is IAED. In order to be responsible for IAED, the plaintiff must prove that the defendant's conduct is intentional or reckless, that the defendant's conduct is extreme and outrageous, that there is a causal connection between the wrongful conduct and the emotional distress, and that the emotional distress is severe. And that is the intentional torts to the person. Battery, assault, false imprisonment, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. On an exam, remember, each tort has elements. If you can't prove one element, you can't prove the tort. But on an exam, you should always discuss every element of the tort. Be strategic. Show the professor you can explore each element. So that is it for intentional torts to the person. Thank you to www.bensound.com for the music. And remember, on an exam, don't write like an undergrad, merely showing the professor you memorized the law. The key to success on a law school exam is to analyze, analyze, analyze. In other words, always apply law to fact. <laughs>